All right, so Revelation part one. I'm just going to blow through some intro stuff. Don't let your hearts be troubled. There will be a video coming in a few moments, okay? I know you guys will probably walk right out of here if we don't have a Bible project video, so it's coming. But as far as some intro stuff, the author is the Apostle John, and of course, as most things in biblical studies, that is debated. Some people don't know if it's the Apostle John or another John. Most guys think it is the Apostle John. The church fathers thought it was the Apostle John. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and other people said it was the Apostle John. But more importantly, the real author, in a sense, is Jesus, because Jesus is the one speaking, and Jesus is the one giving this revelation to John. John is writing this while he's exiled to the island of Patmos in a prison colony which we'll see is on account of the word of God. So it's off the coast of Greece. And I'll show you mapping a little bit too, so don't get excited. It's coming too, okay? So he is imprisoned for the word of God, so persecuted. It was written, again, a matter of speculation. The majority view is in the 90s, not the 1990s, but the AD 90s under Emperor Domitian, and not really sure if that's true or not, because some people say it was written in the 60s, not 1960, but 60s AD. And that has everything to do with how you interpret the book. And that's going to be important in a little while. But the strongest evidence for the 90s is, again, one of the church fathers, Irenaeus, said in the second century that it was under the reign of uh, Domitian. Uh, So it probably is. We don't know for sure. Other church fathers agree, Eusebius, Victorinus, uh, later on Jerome agreed with that as well, um, but also many others date it in the 60s. Um, this has, again, everything to do with how you interpret the book, and we'll look at that in a little bit. As far as the audience, we're looking at the seven churches of Asia Minor, right? That's an important thing, because it was, sometimes we get all trippy about Revelation, but it was actually written to people that the Apostle John knew. It was written to, in context to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Dr. Tom Schreiner writes, we are reminded that the book wasn't written as a general tract about the end of history, but was intended for the churches in Asia Minor in the first century. So we need to be cautious, therefore, of what Dr. Schreiner refers to as performing newspaper eschatology. Or in our sense, maybe Fox News, eschatology, right? You read something in the news and you automatically think, this is Revelation. Uh, It may or or may not be. Probably most of the time, it may not be. Um, No, he wasn't real happy with those churches, which we'll look at. Except for one, yeah. But by extension, it is, of course, written to all the churches, not just exclusively those seven churches in Asia Minor. So by extension, it is written to us. As far as a uh, a genre, we have a mixture. We have some things that are epistolatory, namely, of course, the letters to the seven churches would be epistles. We have some prophecy. We have some apocalyptic literature. And uh, one of my other former professors, Dr. Robert Plummer, says apocalyptic literature is a genre of Jewish literature characterized by its use of symbolic imagery to reveal God's mysterious providential workings behind the scenes and his coming plans for the future. So we have to remember in there we have symbolic imagery. 
And that happens a lot in the book of Revelation. Therefore, we should be very, very careful about taking symbolic imagery and saying it is literal. We have to be very, very careful. Such as, don't ever Google Revelation because you'll get stuff like that. Which is the dragon, which has five heads and ten horns. And there's the lady of Babylon who's riding that or something like that. Okay, so we, that we, we don't... We don't want to do this, okay? We've got to remember we have a lot of symbolic imagery. Yes, Ronald. <laughs> Next question. But I will say no, no, it is not. It is definitely, definitely not. It is not a secret code to figure out the details of the end of the world. Okay, let's just get that out of the way. It is also not necessarily chronological, okay, in order. And it has been completely misinterpreted, gone crazy land, right? The great G.K. Chesterton said, Although St. John the Evangelist saw many monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as his future commentators. <laughs> and that's totally, totally true, right? So it is, uh, as my friend R.C. Sproul says, apocalyptic prophecy. And so leaning more towards symbolism rather than literal interpretation. And speaking of interpretation, there are really four basic interpretive approaches. First up is Mr. Preterism, which says that the events basically already occurred. Now remember, this has everything to do with the date. So that would have to happen if it was written before 70 A.D. Who knows what happened in 70 A.D.? Destruction. Yes, the destruction of the temple. So if you are a raging preterist, you are probably saying that most of Revelation already happened and it had to do with the fall of Jerusalem, so that therefore you would date this book probably somewhere in the 60s, something like that. That's preterism. Another one is futurism which holds that the visions of chapter 6 through 18 will occur in a period of final crisis just before Christ returns, and it will lead up to the historical events of 19 through 22. And we think of Revelation, we're thinking like, ah, like most of that, ah, is 19 through 22. So you guys should stick with us the whole time. Don't just come back at the last one when we get to all that crazy stuff, okay? The date... <laughs> is December 32nd, uh, 3,094. Now, I, uh, I'm not going to tell you any dates. Sorry. Next one is historicism. Most of the book is basically a chronological outline of church history from the first century up until Jesus returns. The visions and cycles are going to correlate directly to what is happening in church history up until that point. And last but certainly not least is idealism. It's not really actual events. They're more trends or forces that are engaged in ongoing spiritual warfare in the kingdom of God against the devil and his minions. They're not specific events. So, which one is correct? I don't know. I'm going to say that a lot when we're in Revelation. I don't know. Uh, I think that it's probably wise to have a mixture when you're walking through these of some parts of all of these. And the Holy Spirit's going to have to be your guide. In that, I could lean certain ways in some of these things, but I think we're going to borrow from some of these if we, as we go along. One very important 
interpretive foundation that Revelation is steeped in Old Testament references. There are tons of them in Revelation. Someone numbered the verses of Revelation. There are 405 verses in Revelation, of which 278 are allusions to the Old Testament. So that's a lot. Well over half, if my math is correct, right? Now, with all that in mind, and we have our little, uh, I'm going to get my little iPad fired up here. We've got our little foundation set. I have an abbreviated video from our friends at the Bible Project. Are we ready? Are we set? Are we excited? Hopefully, yay. Hopefully this will work. Looks like the book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalypsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse has recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus, exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. 
A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join in the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But it turns out no one is able to open the scroll until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne, and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer, and the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Oh, man. Typo. I told you it was an abbreviated video. Okay. Let's get that typo off the screen. All right. As you can see, uh, the uh, authors of that video took the uh, 90 AD uh, interpretive approach as to when it was written. So um, just keep in mind, other people may not have that interpretive approach. All right. So let's jump in. Chapter 1. Of Revelation. If you're looking for Revelation, it's the last book. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty easy to find. All right, so chapter one is really an introduction to the whole book itself. Okay, so um, I'm going to read the first eight verses for us and then we'll kind of pick it apart a little bit. So the Revelation, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. 
John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omicron. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I am the Alpha and the Omega. <laughs> I worked on that joke all day. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right, so this is John. He is giving this message. It has been given to him by an angel, one of the other artifacts or characteristics of an apocalyptic uh, literature is that it's given by an intermediary. So a supernatural given message given by a supernatural intermediary. And so if we look at verse 3, this is a key theme in the book. It says, blessed are you if you hear these words and blessed are those who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Remember those words here, because they're going to appear in these first couple chapters a lot. Okay, so he's saying right off the bat, this is a message for you guys in the church to hear and to react to. And then also, of course, verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, says the Lord who was and is to come. What is Alpha and Omega? The beginning and the end. They are the first, right, and the last characters of the Greek alphabet. So it's Jesus saying that I am the beginning and the end. Jesus is the first and the last. And Jesus is God, because God has said this as well. And Jesus says this about himself numerous times throughout the book. So if you had to sum up what the book is about, at a high level, it is about the return of Jesus Christ and how the church then should prepare for the return of Jesus Christ. And as far as what the church has historically believed, the church has historically believed in a personal, visible, sudden, and bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ, called his second coming to distinguish it from his first coming, which we're walking through now at Advent, when we celebrate at Christmas. So, yeah, when we talk about the return of Jesus Christ, we are talking about, yes, an actual, physical, bodily return of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, 
for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. These are the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so again, historical events here. John was actually exiled to Patmos for the gospel. He was being persecuted. He was arrested, and he was sent to a penal colony on Patmos, and where he was supposedly working in mines day in and day out, doing physical labor as punishment for being a Christian. John sees a vision of the resurrected Christ, and the voice speaks, and in my Bible, the letters are red. Anybody else in the Bible have red letters in their Bible? So this is Jesus speaking, and he commands to John, says, write these things down for the seven churches, and he's standing among seven golden lampstands, which he tells us straight up, are the seven churches themselves. Another common feature of apocalyptic literature is numerology. And so the number seven is very important, and you will see that throughout. Anybody know what the number seven represents? Yeah, it represents completion, completeness, perfection. Where else do we see golden lampstands? Remember what I said in the beginning, think Old Testament, right? Yeah, in the temple. So right away, John's uh, readers are going to be like, oh, I know where those are from. Those are from the temple. Right? So he's tying together the old covenant with the new covenant of what's happening at the end here. Who does he see? He sees one like a son of man. Sounds familiar, right? Jesus had been calling himself that in Matthew. It's a messianic title. Anybody remember where it's from? Uh, Ezekiel might mention it, but it is Daniel, definitely Daniel 7. Yep, so again, they're going, okay, this is, this is the Messiah. I'm remembering these things from, from the Old Testament, right? And oh, I missed one of the slides, sorry guys. Um, John then promptly falls down dead, or like dead, right? Why? Scary. <laughs> it's absolutely terrifying, right? Anybody think of another reaction in the Old Testament that was kind of like this? Moses, good one, yeah. Somebody we did recently in the book of Isaiah, yeah. Woe unto me, I am undone, right? He flips out when he's in the presence of God. Yep, I'm a man of unclean lips, right? He says, this is the resurrected Jesus, and John makes that very apparent because Jesus says himself, I died, but now I'm alive, and I'm alive forevermore. And so this is the all-sovereign Jesus, and he says, I hold the keys of death and hell, and what comes from his mouth are sharp, two-edged swords. Right? Again, not literal. Jesus is not shooting daggers out of his mouth, although that would be really cool if that happened. <laughs> Why is he calling it a... What is, what is, what is the connection between word and sword? Anybody think of any other references? The sword of the Spirit? Yep, in Ephesians 6, absolutely, the Word of God. What about like Hebrews anywhere? Hebrews 4, 12. Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? These things are tying it together, right? It's a living Word. 
So what's coming from Jesus is the word, and it cuts like a sword. Jesus tells them straight up again that those seven golden lampstands are the churches. And a takeaway from this section, I really liked how the movie put it, to view the present in light of history's final outcome. Like, where are we now? Where are we going? And that's what he's trying to encourage the people who are facing persecution in these churches. He's like, okay, guys, I get it. I've been persecuted too. Hello, I'm in a penal colony in, in an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Like, I, I don't have, I get it. But view the present persecution in light of the final outcome, in light of Christ's sovereignty, in light of his authority, which is all under the authority of God. And so therefore, even for us, that should be a lot of encouragement. And it was meant to encourage the church to press on, okay? Even in spite of persecution. Are we good? Questions, comments, disparaging remarks so far? All right. Chapters 2 and 3, we have the letters to the seven churches. This would be the epistle portion of the program. And the seven churches, we actually have a map here. And I actually brought my pointer. I'm on fire today. So, here are the seven churches, and I don't know why they chose the yellow font. I'm sorry, I tried to make the background a little better, but those are the seven churches. The island of Patmos is somewhere around here, in one of those many islands off Greece. And down here is Israel. These are modern countries, by the way. So here, down here is Israel. So that's kind of a bigger scale of, of where we're at geomographically, okay? All right, let's go back to chapters two and three letters to the seven churches right so these seven cities we'll just review them briefly ephesus is the greatest city in asia minor huge idolatrous presence the temple of artemis is there um, smyrna is the city of great wealth one of the hubs of the imperial religion does anybody know what we mean when we say the imperial religion think of star wars Yeah, absolutely. So Roman Empire, you need to worship the emperor as a god. Now, it wasn't exclusive. And here's where some of the church really capitulated and caved into culture. Because the Roman government would say, you can worship God. You can worship Jesus. You can do all your thing. Just give a little bit of a pinch of incense to the emperor too along with that. Just make sure it's covered. Right? You can worship any god you want to. I mean, we're Rome. They, we have a million gods. But you have to include worship to the emperor in whatever you're doing. Right? That's, how it was, that's how it was pitched. And we'll see a couple of these cities and churches. That's a precisely Paul's problem with them. Or yeah, John's problem with them. That they are caving in. Right? So Smyrna, one of the hubs of the imperial religion. Pergamum was the biggest center of the imperial religion. Also massive temples to Zeus and other gods. Thyatira was the least important of the seven. But it, was the, it contains the longest letter. There's not just sexual immorality, but spiritual adultery, again, in embracing such things as magic and astrology. Sardis was a commercial city on a central trade route. It's fading from its former uh, glory. It was once the home of a massive acropolis. Acropolis. Wow, I can't say that word. Acropolis. It's now largely uninhabited at that point. Philadelphia, Ken was alluding to a church that seemed to uh, be legit, and Philadelphia kind of takes that title. They were of little strength, we'll see in a moment. Seemed to be a strong church in the city. And then Laodicea, 
um, had great resources, but a very, very poor water supply, which affected them greatly, but also it's going to be important when we get there, okay? There are some things that are repeated in these letters to the churches. We'll see in a moment. So think of these things. One of them is going to be repent. He's going to tell them over and over again to repent of whatever they're doing wrong. The second one, which we kind of saw already, which he's going to say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He's going to say that over and over again. And when we're talking about hearing, we're not just talking about, oh, I actually heard that sound of your voice. We're talking about actually obeying. So not only is it repent, but it's repent and prepare. Repent and get ready. As I said at the member meeting, talking about the uh, sons of Issachar, right? They understood the times. That's what, what, what John is saying here. You have ears to hear, hear and prepare. And we'll also hear in these letters a big theme about conquering. He who is blessed conquers and overcomes. So repent, prepare, but also persevere. Right? And so... Um, let me read some of these things, and then we can get into it here. So let's look, let's look at Ephesus. I'm just going to read portions of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing, right, because we're doing okay on time so far. But Ephesians 2, verse 3, let's look, look at what John says to Ephesus. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my main, name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And he skips down. Uh, look at verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant, I will eat I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So all those themes, some of those things, they're all repeated right here in this first, first passage to Ephesus. What does it mean to lose your first love? It doesn't mean your first girlfriend that broke your heart or your first boyfriend. What, is your, what, does, he, what does he mean when he says, I have this against you, you've lost your first love? Fire when you first yeah, the fire when you first believe, right? As a church, right, their priorities seem to be a little bit out of whack. They seem to have other things in place of Jesus himself and serving Jesus. And so he says, this I have against you. You've lost your, you've, you've lost your first love. And what a reminder to us. Like, don't lose your first love. Christ has to be our first priority, right? It says somewhere in the Bible, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? That's what we're talking about here, that we have to love God with everything we have. And isn't it, isn't it kind of convicting, it's very convicting, that the first uh, accusation from John is that they've lost their first love. Let's look at Smyrna in verses maybe 10 and 11. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And again, he says, he who has in here, let him hear to the Spirit what he says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So, 
what is, what is John saying here to Smyrna? What is his charge to them? And I know I put the answers up there, right? Like I always do. Right, persevere, right? Don't fear persecution. He says it's, it's coming, and don't fear, but he says some of you are going to be put in prison, that you may be tested, he says. How is this an encouragement to us in 2021 America? Does it relate at all? No? A little bit? It's getting there, right? We're being culturally marginalized right now. We don't have much of a seat at the table in the public square. People kind of think we're uh, narrow-minded and simple and kind of crazy, right? And it's persecution's coming for sure. And we have encouragement and do not fear. And so church, to us, right, he who has an ear, let him hear. That's what we need to do. We need to remember. We need to, we need to understand this. And we need to not fear persecution. Also, there's a little bit in here where he says the synagogue of Satan It may mean that there were Jews that were amongst them that have turned against the Christians and are actually contributing and persecuting them, turning them in, that sort of thing, helping the authorities to persecute them. He says, do not fear. All right, let's look at Pergamum, maybe 2.13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So we can be exhorted to not give in to false teaching, or to give in to tyrannical governments. And where do I get that from? Where he says, um, in verse 13 that I just read, Satan's throne. Pretty much every, every commentator on the face of the earth would say that that's Rome. And that is the, the seat of the satanic oppression or how Satan is using Rome to persecute the church. And he says, no matter what's going on, don't, don't give in to false teaching. Don't give in to a tyrannical government like that. So that's Pergamum. Let's look at Thyatira. 19 and 20. I know your works, your love, and your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceeded the first works. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Right? So Jezebel, we have a name. Anybody remember who Jezebel was? Yeah, she was in the Old Testament, yeah, and she contributed, of course, with one of the most evil kings in uh, Israel history, right? And it is a, right, symbolic reference. It's not actual Jezebel. It's a symbolic reference, except for that one picture where I think she was, remember, was that, it could have been the lady from Babylon. I'm not sure who was riding that crazy dragon. Um, but the idea is that you're seducing Uh, the people of the church, Christians, believers, to practice sexual immorality, which was rampant, of course, in the Roman Empire, to give in to idolatry and all of those things. Does any of that relate to today at all? Or is this just all kind of very obscure references? Are we being pressured to cave in to any changing sexual norms in our culture at all? A little bit? 
Yeah, constantly. Absolutely. It is. And so we take encouragement from that. But also, there's, again, that mixture of compromise. That mixture of, yeah, I'll, I'll allow a little magic or a little sorcery or a little bit of worshiping of the emperor or whatever else I have to do to make my life go easy. Now, think about this, too. Somebody was talking about the mark of the beast, which that is not what we're talking about here, but sort of related, because if you are then on the outs, right, can you necessarily go buy and trade and own a business and sell and do all those things in the market that you have to do? You, you can't. It's super hard to do. And so this is all wrapped up in this, guys, that Paul saying, John saying, Paul is like the universal New Testament author in my mind. So when I don't have a book that's written by Paul, it takes me like a couple hours to remember that. He's saying, I know persecution is everywhere, and I know what it's called. He says, do not be afraid. Resist. Don't go after false teaching. Don't give in to tyrannical governments. Stand strong. Do not commit sexual immorality. Do not compromise the culture. Compromise with the culture at the expense of faith. What about uh, Sardis? Look at the first two verses of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis. I wonder if we have an angel of the church of Highlands. That would be pretty cool to think about. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, I know your works and you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your works complete in the sight of my God. And he says, remember, of course, and repent. What is he telling Sardis? What's the situation? What does he have against them? They appear to be legit, right? kind of a biting critique isn't it he says you have the reputation of being alive but you're actually dead it is not uncommon today yeah we have churches that have a reputation of the, they look like a church that would be faithful but they're actually not right All the pro look at all these programs we have for you, Lord, and look at all these people that we have. Look at all the outreach that we're doing, which is not, not bad. I'm not saying that, but why are you doing it, right? Wise man said, would you win them with, you win them too. Like people, if you win them with crazy programs and all kinds of stuff to constantly be entertained, they're going to expect that for the rest of their lives, <laughs> right? What big thing are you going to do next for us, Pastor? Um, preach the gospel? How about we do that? I know, so boring. Let's look at Philadelphia 3, 7, and 8. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, Old Testament, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. He knows everybody's works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Seems like they're doing kind of okay. Seems like they have kept God's word and they're doing okay, right? And that's another charge to us, to keep God's word. 
Do you guys notice that the cultural battle continues to come back to God's word? Right? Like even go with gender, marriage, and sexuality, right? It's a battle for what? What did God actually say about those things? Right? So we've got to keep God's word. We've got to know God's word. Hold. Yep. 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 Even though they weren't very powerful, they were faithful. That's good because it's God and the spirit working through them. Yeah. And last but certainly not least, we have Laodicea in, uh, let's look at 15 and 16. I know your works too. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold. ESV, why did you do that? Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Anybody know why there's, I, I had said they had a problem with their water. Anybody know what the problem with the water in Laodicea was? Well, it was lukewarm. <laughs> Do we know why it was lukewarm? It's true. I set myself up for that. It was lukewarm. They got their water probably from Colossae, which was like miles and miles and miles away. So by the time it ran down the aqueduct, it was bleh. <laughs> it was very lukewarm. It wasn't, wasn't really something that would be refreshing, of course. It's just lukewarm. And Jesus is saying here, you got to be one way or the other. Not lukewarm. And I'll spit you out of my mouth. All right. Let's press on, see if we can get four and five done. This gets crazy. The throne room in heaven. This is another part of the vision. I'll read the first 11 verses for us. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven in the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven, one with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. I just hear that song in my head. Um, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which were the seven spirits of God, and before the throne... There was, as it was, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Okay, we have a glimpse of the throne room in heaven. Crazy scene going on here, right? We see uh, the voice beckoning, Jesus saying, come up here. Some commentators note, I think it's a good, good parallel. What did God say to Moses on Mount Sinai? Come up here. <laughs> I got stuff for you. 
I got the law, I got all kinds of things, right? And here we see this again at the end of all things. We see 24 elders. What are the 24 elders? Well, not entirely sure. Could be angels representing the church as worshipers. Could be an analogy to elders in the local church, but on more of a, a cabinet level, you might say. Could be the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 disciples in numerology, right? But again, I think if we put all those things together, it's probably safest to say it represents the church as a whole. It represents the Old Testament, the New Testament, represents the saints have gone before, the saints now, it represents the elders of the church, it represents all of the church worshiping Jesus around the throne. And we've got four living creatures. Has this happened anywhere else in Scripture before? Four living creatures. Yeah. Ezekiel, right? What's that? The faces and the wheels and the eyes and Zechariah's got some stuff in there too, right? Um, so again, they're going to be thinking about, about those things, right? And what are they saying? What are the living creatures saying? Yeah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, right? Where else have we heard that? Or, or maybe the first part. Holy, holy, holy. <laughs> Revelation song, yes. Over and over and over and over again, yes. <laughs> Where else in the Old Testament have we heard something like that before? Isaiah 6, right? And Isaiah, again, that idea of just like the holiness of God, the, the, he's so undone, and he kind of busts into that same idea of what's going on around. Um, what are the four living creatures? They could be the guards of the throne, maybe. Uh, but again, I think we could also say that it's representative of what's happening there, worship. And, and all these different creatures with different kinds of things you know, it goes right into, in the end there, they're saying, uh, you're, re you're worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. Why? Because you created all things. And all things are cr existed and were created by you, by your will. And so these are creatures that have been created. So isn't it natural then that creatures would worship the creator in all different kinds of com combinations of oxes and eagles and men and whoever else we had here all of that covered with eyes right we also had some of the living creatures with six wings right another another throwback to isaiah right in that but again it's really about the holiness of god and and that there's 24 7 around the clock worship going on um my good friend bob coffin when he would lead worship, sometimes would say that, you know, church, it's time to join in. <laughs> My acquaintance, it's time to, it's time to join in with what's going on around the throne right now. That's how sometimes he would start us off in worship, and I think that's that's a great thing to think about. Like we're, you know, we roll in here on a Sunday morning at nine thirty, and we're going to start singing, but there's singing and praise and glory and honor going on around the throne every day all day we're just joining in we're just doing it ourselves it's so cool to think about so we take away from this of course god is holy god is yeah that's for free ron um, god is holy 
God is in absolute authority. He is ruling and he's reigning right now. This is a view that you kind of peel back the curtain. You actually see what's going on in the throne room. That's what, that's what happens to John. And he, and he rules and reigns in a specific way. And I really liked what one guy pointed out, right, in verse 6. It says, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. What, what, would, you, what would come to mind if you saw the ocean was like glass? Yeah, a mirror, okay. Limitless, okay. Isn't it? Peter would definitely not be afraid. I probably wouldn't be afraid to get out and walk on that if it were like glass, right? Isn't, isn't the ocean kind of usually something that's constantly moving? In Scripture we see, what's that? Stillness, yeah. This is the way that our God rules the world. Not in chaos. Before his throne is a sea of glass. He's in complete authority. He's not frazzled by anything. He's not worried about anything. He's not out of control in anything. Everything is smooth. Everything is at peace. I love that one guy said that, and I think that's a really astute observation there. And of course, again, that God is worthy of all worship. All worship. It kind of, when you see a scene like this in the throne room, you're kind of like, oh, well, get together and sing, come praise and glorify. And it's like... We try, but this is like, this is just so powerful. And we should, of course, get together and sing those things. But it should inspire us to do that. All right, let's see if we can get through chapter 5. Everybody good? Okay. Chapter 5, let me read. Uh, let's read chapter 5. It's only 14 verses. What the heck, you know? Then I saw at the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, and behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Think about that. Our prayers are collected. And they, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and strength and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down 
and worshipped. Anybody else like getting goosebumps at this point? Reading this like, oh my gosh. So we have the scroll. What is on the scroll? I know I said it there. See, I want to give you guys the information, but then I also want interaction. I'm stuck in this dichotomy here. Right? So, yeah, we definitely have seals that are on the scroll. And everybody gets that a scroll was sealed by little wax um, dots, right, that held everything together with the king's insignia. There are seven of them, which represents perfection, right, completeness. There are many theories of what is on the scroll, and I think all of them kind of come back to the same thing. It's probably what's going on right now. What is the next thing? It's the decrees of God. What is going to happen? What's the plan of God? What is that final installment in God's big story? Right? The final installment. We, of course, have you know, creation. We have uh, sin. We have redemption. And then the last part is what we're up to right now, consummation, restoration. And so the act of opening that scroll is basically saying, we are setting this in motion right now. And so I think it's pretty safe to say that whatever is on that scroll is God's decrees for how Jesus will return and when everything will happen. It is the scroll, it's, it's Biblon in the Greek, which is where we get our word Bible. And so it's just the continuation of God's revelation. Um, and on that, of course, who is worthy to open the scroll? Yeah. There's only one being that's worthy to open the scroll. And it is this mysterious, like, lion thing. Verse 5 says, uh, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Another key word. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Where do we see those terms? Lion of the tribe of Judah root of David, more Old Testament references, right? Remember when we looked at Isaiah the last couple weeks and how uh, the tribe of Judah or the, the southern kingdom of Judah was cut down and they had a stump? And then they said that the hope would be the, the shoot, the root that came from that stump, right? Here we see that continued. Again, the root of David, of course, we are talking about Jesus, Jesus as the Lamb. He has seven, what does it say? He has seven horns and seven eyes, and he doesn't necessarily have seven actual horns and seven actual eyes, although if you Google that, I'm sure you will definitely see plenty of things on there. If you go to YouTube, I'm sure you'll see plenty more, right? Probably tied in with some sort of Nephilim or something like that towards the end, All right? Only, only the lamb is worthy to open the scroll. Right? This, again, is the deity and the humanity of Jesus. Right? Because we see it kind of tied in. like he's, he's kind of both represented here as both the lion and the lamb. He's like God, but he's also Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. So it's hugely important to see both the deity and humanity of Jesus. And so some takeaways as we land the plane. Uh, Jesus conquers in humility and death. Right? You would think like, okay, that's weird. Like a, a dead lamb is the one that's going to open the scrolls. But that's the point 
of the gospel that Jesus did. He was our sacrificial lamb. He was our Passover lamb. Again, tying all these things together from the Old Testament. Jesus is king, even though he condescended to earth, right, as a humble baby in a manger, and then grew up, right, and then was, of course, crucified and killed on the cross. And then Jesus is king, despite that he condescended to earth. And last, again, God is in full control and exercises full authority over the end of the world and ushering in the next world, right? This is, this is, this is God saying, okay, nothing's going to happen. The end of the world is not going to happen until I say so, until my perfect plan, until everything is set in motion in my timing. God has perfect authority, perfect control. And so, Again, we've kind of come full circle in that sense. How should that make us feel no matter what we see on the news? Yeah, right. Not scared, right? We should not be characterized by being alarmists, right, of what's going on, right? And there's a lot of that online, a lot of that if you search a lot of these things. Yeah, there are weird things happening and persecution is definitely ramping up and the government's definitely overreaching and the church is definitely being marginalized and you can see things that are being set up. But that is not cause for panic. It is cause for faith and cause for trust because this is the God that's sitting on the throne. So that's encouragement for us. We will press on in the next two weeks and uh, get through the remaining chapters. But any other thoughts, comments? Disparaging remarks. That, that tension is so, yeah, he is king, he's ruling and reigning right now, but yet he's also the sacrificial lamb right now that we need, has to be both. Ronald. <laughs> I was just trying to think of a really good response. Who is the Antichrist? Wow. That's it, and we're taking off YouTube right now. <laughs> there we go. It just happened. Yeah, real. <laughs> I'm serious. Question. <laughs> I am not deep in actual commentary books, but I can tell you some of the guys that I used for this and will continue to use. And of course, one of them is our good friend, R.C. I think he has a really good balanced, historically balanced perspective on things. Um, second one is, I would say, is Tom Schreiner because he's actually doing a full-blown uh, commentary on it coming out soon, but I really respect his balance, and he looks at things in a way that says, here's this, here's this, here's this, instead of, not always, it's sometimes even so balanced you have a hard time understanding, like, are you taking a position on something? Or, you know, but he, he leads you to where you need to go. Yeah. Um, and there was one more that, oh, well, the church fathers. 
you know, I would definitely say look at church history, especially as we get into crazier topics like the millennium. Look at the church fathers, you know, because history is going to reveal what are the new ideas that may not be so biblically grounded and what has the church believed for over a thousand years in the midst of all that. Oh, yeah. You have to not practice Fox News eschatology. Definitely not. Did you have another question, Ronald? Yes. I would. Uh, I think I I would agree with RC. I'm, I I would I would say I'm a partial preterist. I would say we're talking about a lot of things that have happened already, especially when we get into the parallels in like Matthew 24. There's a lot that's happening there that I believe was connected to the fall of Jerusalem. But uh, I, as Dr. Boyce say, uh, look forward to being corrected in glory if that is not the correct view. So <laughs> we'll see. All right, let me pray for us and we'll get back to our Wednesdays. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. These things for us to read are, are a strange mixture of so inspiring and uh, awe-inducing, Lord, as we think about the scene in your throne room and we think about the worship that is going on around your throne right now. We think about the way that you rule and reign over all of your creation, which worships you. We think about your authority. We think about your knowledge and your sovereignty, Lord. We pray that that would humble us. Pray that it would drive us to obedience, like the author says here, that we would hear and that we would keep we, we would have ears to hear and that we would obey. And when the time comes as the, the church continues to be marginalized or in the case of some of our other brothers and sisters around the world where they suffer direct persecution, Lord, that you would keep them strong and faithful and persevering until the end. Lord, most of all, would you build our encouragement, our faith, our belief in all of those things. And may we stand strong because we are rooted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who is both the lion and the lamb. We pray it all in his name. Amen.